there, folks. Welcome to Gold Mountain Bears, the show that shares the rich history of Chinese population in the United States since the gold rush period in the mid-19th century. I'm one of your co-hosts, Zilin, a third-year sociology major and a dance minor at UC Berkeley. Hello, um, my name is Raymond. I'm a senior majoring in chemical engineering and data science at UC Berkeley. Hi, I'm Phoebe, your other co-host and a sophomore at UC Berkeley studying computer science. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this special episode. I'm the producer. My name is Jessica Chow. I'm a third year majoring in business administration and minoring in Asian American Asia diaspora studies. Today, we're talking about Chinese laundries, early case studies of struggle against discrimination with our special guest, John Zhang. Zhang is a retired professor of psychology with over 40 years of university teaching and research experience in alcohol studies. He is currently an active researcher and author of five books on the history of Chinese American experience in major forms of self-employment in family businesses such as laundries, restaurants, and grocery stores. In 2017, the Chinese Historical Society of Southern California awarded him a golden spike as a storyteller. Thank you, Ziling. Um, before we get into the interview, let's take a quick intermission to hear about PRISM. We also support peace and love for queer and trans youth of color and survivors of police violence. With your continued support, PRISM will be able to fulfill the dream for all of us. Thank you for your love. We'll now go back to our interview with John Zhang. So give it up for Dr. Zhang. Um, if you would like to introduce yourself to the audience, that'd be great. Sure, um, I'm a retired psychologist. I taught at Cal State University, Long Beach for probably over 40 years, um, teaching uh, in experimental psychology and alcohol and drug addictions. And after I retired, um, I was looking for something to do. Uh, kind of got bored and all my life, um, people, when they found out that uh, I had grown up in uh, Georgia and a Chinese laundry, they were pretty interested and they said, oh, that would make an interesting story. And I really didn't think so at the time. And I just uh, sort of uh, ignored that. But finally, when I was in retirement, I did kind of reflect about it a little bit. And even though I didn't necessarily think my story was the most interesting, I, I felt like it was something I wanted to give a shot at, you know, uh, something I'd never done before. And I guess I wanted to write about my parents, uh, immigrants from China, and what their life was like, you know, coming all the way to Georgia and being the only Chinese people in town and trying to raise a family. So that was how I got involved with this. And then one thing led to another. And uh, I was having some uh, opportunities to go and give talks about it. And reception was kind of good. And so um, I thought, well, you know, um, I learned so much about Chinese laundries, uh, when I did my first book, which was a memoir about my family, Southern Fried Rice, um, that um, at the time I was growing up, I really didn't realize um, that with that many Chinese laundries, you know, all over the United States and virtually every little small town, you'd find a Chinese laundry or two. And so that kind of got me fascinated uh, into looking at the history of why the Chinese open laundries and what the reception was and 
what significant role it played in our history in America, and actually um, in many other countries, Canada included, and Australia, England. And uh, so anyway, um, I've been uh, for the last 15 years writing about Chinese American history. So I sort of reinvented myself, uh, find it very uh, interesting and rewarding. So that's that's basically my background. Well, that's really interesting to see like about your passion towards, um, I guess, like even your own personal history written into, you know, Chinese American history. So um, we can get started right now. So sure. our underlying theme today is on Chinese immigration to the United States prior to the 21st century. So Chinese people had a long and complex history in the US and with many instances of racial discrimination. So today we would like to talk about Chinese laundries and in particular, perhaps the discriminatory issues that occurred there. And I know that these like laundries were common workplaces for like newly immigrated, uh, immigrated Chinese. So I'd like to start out by asking, why did laundries become a chief means of support for Chinese immigrants? Okay. Um, when the Chinese first came, the immigrants in the probably 1850s or you know earlier than that probably, uh, especially with the gold rush, but um, they were discriminated uh, in the mining fields and. Uh, uh, relegated to the lesser digs, you know, like whatever's left over. So they didn't last long there. But then, uh, as we know from all the publicity recently, um, thousands of Chinese were recruited from China as cheap labor to work on the railroad, the Transcontinental Railroad. And uh, in 1869, it was completed. And that was a great. <coughs> achievement for America to be connected from coast to coast. And it felt like um, the country was now, uh, I won't say unified, but it stretched from one ocean to the other. But on the other hand, for the Chinese immigrants, you had thousands of them who were like overnight, technically unemployed. So what are they gonna do? Um, it's true, some of them went and worked on what I call peripheral railroads satellite railroads that stemmed off of the main east-west line into the you know uh, midwest into the southwest and south but still there were a lot of other chinese who ended up doing laundries um, and that was partly because that was not immediately contested uh, by white people um, we have to remember that at that time the country was not highly urbanized. It was still basically an agricultural and farming uh, area. And so there weren't a lot of uh, businesses offering laundry, laundry services in the small towns. Now, I think it's also important to note that uh, these men who uh, started these laundries did not do the laundry in China. They, they, when they came, they didn't know how to do laundry. In China, the women went down to the riverbanks and did the laundry. The men didn't do it. All right, so they had to learn on the fly. Well, of course, in those days, it wasn't as maybe complicated. Now you needed uh, soap and water and a wash tub and some place to dry the clothes, some place to iron the clothes. It was mainly manual labor. You didn't have to be a genius to run a laundry. And so they would 
find opportunities in maybe near small towns initially, and then later they moved over to bigger cities. And uh, this was a easy to start up business in terms of capital. You didn't need a lot of money uh, to open one because you didn't have a lot of equipment. The smaller ones didn't really have many employees. It's usually maybe two men, maybe three. And it would be hard for one person to do it because you'd need somebody to manage the front and someone to be doing the, the work and maybe rotate. So these men would find relatives, people from their clan, maybe uh, a brother, a father, a son, uh, to work with them, and they would have their own business. There was a manage to this too, because if you have your own business and uh, you're doing okay, you can't be fired, I guess. Whereas if you're working for someone else, if they don't like you, you're out of work, right? So the laundry became um, sort of synonymous to the white Americans as this is what Chinese are. In fact, actually, you know, originally Chinese laundry was probably called the wash house or for Americans, the washi washi. And that right there, you can see some of the, well, I don't know if you want to call it racism, but because Chinese often put an extra little syllable on the anything, the E, so it wasn't just the wash house, it was the washi house. And so that was a way of sort of, uh, you know, mocking the Chinese or um, the familiar slogan, um, no tiki, no shirty. And again, that's mocking the Chinese that they, they can't speak English the way Americans do. You know, I always thought that was a very unfair criticism, the, the no washi, no shirty. Because I would think, well, if you went um, to uh, say some shoe uh, place where you had repairs and you showed up and, and you didn't have a ticket, they wouldn't give you your shoes. I mean, how would they know that you're the person who owns those shoes? So I think it was mainly um, the fact that they ridiculed the Chinese language or the way they spoke English, uh, the way they were they dressed uh, in their uh, little blue uh, tunics and they wore shoes that Chinese were seen as different and uh, that you know that basically what they did was operate laundries. Now it's interesting now um, that we in the 21st century and laundries are not as profitable for most people as before because everyone virtually has a home washing machine and newer fabrics are easier to, to wash. So there's really no need for the old fashioned type of Chinese laundry. In fact, I bet if you were to Google Chinese laundry, you would not find what we call Chinese laundries. We would find women's shoes. So when I Google Chinese laundry, I always make it plural. I always put in Chinese laundries and then I'll find something about what we're talking about. So it's kind of an interesting footnote uh, to what, you know, nowadays, uh, like your generation, you, you may have never even seen a Chinese laundry you know, because they're, the old timers are all, you know, retired or, you know, no longer in the business. And yet, I think it's very important um, 
is it was really the first uh, major form of self-employment that the Chinese had. And I already alluded to um, what I saw as the advantage of self-employment. Uh, and you have to remember also initially, most of these Chinese laundries were operated by adult men or young, young boys and men. And because of the uh, Chinese exclusion laws, uh, there were very few women who came from China. Some of these men were married, but their wives and children were back in China and they were separated from them for many years. I read cases where they got reunited maybe after 40 years and they barely recognized each other when they you know, were reunited, a very sad story. So Chinese men who worked in the laundries were essentially bachelors, uh, functionally speaking. Uh, now later, uh, what happened and as you move toward 1900, some of them uh, married American-born Chinese women because uh, there were a few families and then uh, some of them had children. And so some of these men uh, married American citizens. Uh, Ch Chinese uh, born in the USA. But we don't know how many. We know like in New York um, City, uh, the Irish women and Chinese men frequently um, had marriages or sexual relations and offspring. Um, in the South, again, it's not anything we have any firm statistics on, but families were created between Chinese and uh, Blacks. Uh, I didn't use the word African-American, but they didn't use that term in those days. So this uh, then created families for the first time, you know, small units of families. And what happened in the laundry is that I could speak from personal experience and also uh, my conversations with many other people who grew up in Chinese laundries is that we were expected to work. You know, this is for child labor laws. We, we didn't necessarily do the hardest work, but uh, we didn't run out and play you know, after school. We went home and helped out uh, the family because uh, there was always work to do. And um, many of us, I guess, sort of, uh, I won't say necessarily resented it, but didn't like it, you know. And I can remember that if I had homework to do and I told my parents I couldn't help it, you know, I had to do my homework, then that, that was fine. That was the only excuse that I would accept. Now, a fringe benefit, or maybe fringe benefit's not the right thing, but a positive effect of this is the parents always knew where their children were. They were in the laundry working with them. So that meant that maybe they didn't get in as much trouble. You know, we didn't like it, but you know, we think of that as a maybe a positive effect. So uh, by the uh, 1880s, certainly, Chinese laundries were resented by uh, many of the white laundries, and uh, or even people who weren't running laundries. Um, so they started uh, trying to cut down the number of Chinese laundries, try to um, reduce their dominance. So one thing that the Chinese did was they worked 
virtually all through the day. I mean, they didn't quit at six o'clock uh, because sometimes they they couldn't get the work done on time. They it was a very labor intensive job. They had it on their feet all day. Um, sometimes they would work till midnight to get finished the work, go to sleep, and get up the next morning at five or six and start again. So laws were passed in some cities that restricted the working hours that said you're not allowed to work after, I don't know exactly what it was, maybe 10 p.m. depending on the city. And so some Chinese were arrested uh, for violating that law. And um, the purpose of the law was to you know, restrict the competitiveness of, of the Chinese. So invariably, Chinese would seek out white lawyers to, to argue on their behalf and file for writs of habeas corpus. And invariably, um, in most many of those cases, the Chinese ultimately won, um, even though um, city and state ordinances uh, argued that the, the Chinese should be restricted. Uh, the federal courts, when, the, when any cases that went to the federal courts, generally they got a favorable rating uh, evaluation. And it's argued that um, this was partly more, less, less that the federal courts were sympathetic to the Chinese, but they, the federal courts wanted to have control over the laws of the land. They didn't want each state or each city having their own law. They felt that uh, laws that govern things like this should be under the federal jurisdiction, uh, under the 14th Amendment of uh, equal protection of, of the rights of everyone. And they felt that the Chinese were being denied that equal protection. So in that sense, even though the Chinese got hassled about that, they won out. Um, another um, advantage, although this wasn't the main reason, uh, okay, why would Chinese uh, work all night? Uh, number one, they could sleep in the laundry. They would sleep on the ironing boards after they finished you know, they didn't have that much space. They didn't have fancy beds or anything. Um, they were less at risk for being attacked on the street at night. Um, they were uh, less uh, concerned about someone breaking into the store and vandalizing it or burning it down. So and they also save money. I guess those are the, probably the main reasons. The other was just necessity. If you're working to two in the morning and you got to get back at five. You don't want to take an hour to get home and an hour to get back. All right, so that's one reason why they had this working law problem. In some states, they tried to raise revenue by um, fine, by, by issuing licenses, requiring Chinese laundries to have licenses. And these licenses were inequitable. The fees, um, like in Montana, were excessive and there were protests and boycotts. Uh, Chinese didn't take it uh, sitting down passively. They, they usually got lawyers and, and filed court cases to try to protest these uh, things. Uh, a couple of other things they did was uh, they started uh, taxing laundries for various things, um, like in San Francisco and other parts of California. Some Chinese uh, did delivery, believe it or not. They had a horse and buggy and they would go and pick up laundry and, and deliver it. So some places said, well, let's put a tax on the uh, horse and buggy. Um, 
So that's another uh, maneuver to try to make it difficult for the Chinese to uh, financially succeed in running laundries and that they would uh, be less competitive. And then there was the one about the most famous case was in San Francisco in the 1880s, Yik Wo uh, versus um, Rice. Uh, this was the law that said that in San Francisco, you could not operate a laundry in a wooden building. And the argument was that wooden buildings are fire hazards, especially in those days, um, the drying equipment involved uh, setting uh, uh, burning charcoal or, or wood. And there were cases where laundries did burn down. So if they were in a brick building, that would be less likely. Um, as the Three Little Pigs knew, uh, brick buildings are good and wooden buildings are dangerous. So on the surface of it, it was a public safety issue. But what they found was that um, this law, in effect, was discriminatory in that almost all the Chinese laundries were in wooden buildings and very few in brick buildings, if any. And uh, the American laundries were predominantly in brick buildings. And so it was argued that this was uh, unequal protection uh, under the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court eventually ruled in favor of Yik Wo. Um, incidentally, Yik Wo was not one person. I only discovered that recently. I always thought Yik Wo was one guy. There were two guys. One was named Yik and the other one was named Wo. So they, took their two names and put them together. So that was kind of interesting. So um, all of these things um, were, and there were others that are too numerous to mention, but there were attempts to, to curb the growth of the Chinese laundry and uh, make it more available uh, for white laundries. And white laundries uh, put out really discriminatory ads. They would say, uh, you know, like buy American or take your clothes to a white laundry. They don't spit on the laundry. Uh, the laundries, Chinese laundries were seen as unsanitary. Um, whether the hot water and the ironing killed all the germs, we, we don't know. No one ever tested that. But uh, certainly the um, premises, aside from the fact that the Chinese use these water cans to uh, spew water on the clothes to moisten them, to iron them, um, the interiors of the building were, to say the least, probably filthy, unsanitary. Whether it affected the health of the, the you know, people with the clothes, it's no one really knows. I mean, one could speculate. But anyway, all those notions. Um, and then I think in 19, early 1900s in San Francisco, they had one case of plague, and then the rumor spread that all of Chinatown was, you know, uh, spreading germs and dangerous. And that was um, attributed to laundries as well. So all of those things mitigated uh, the success of uh, Chinese laundries. And then in addition, you know, these weren't legal issues, but Chinese laundries were targets for robbery. And uh, there are numerous instances of where there were even some fatalities associated with these robberies. So it was a dangerous job, certainly for uh, Chinese. 
Yeah, thank you, Dr. Zhang, for your really thorough answer, um, touching upon like various historical events as well as like tying it to present times, like talking about your personal history too. Mm -hmm. um, we had another question. So sure. you talked about several of the adversities faced by Chinese laundrymen and about how they like hired white lawyers to protect themselves legally. Um, what were some other ways that these laundrymen were able to resist discrimination, particularly particularly the people that like couldn't afford these lawyers? Well, um, they did uh, have the benefits of clan associations, uh, six companies, the Chinese, what became the Chinese American Citizens Alliance, um, that they could uh, get I guess what you call free service. Uh, they didn't have to pay the bill themselves. Um, the organizations uh, for sort of protection of Chinese and their problems and issues were really important. Uh, that uh, especially like uh, getting even loans from the association to get started. You know, when they first came over uh, from China, you know, they didn't know where to go. In fact, I always wondered like uh, how they would find their way all the way from San Francisco to uh, the Midwest or the Deep South uh, without a guide. I mean, you know, they they were not as a whole highly educated or versed in English and, and know the, the ropes. So I think that was very helpful. Before we move on to the next question, the Gold Mountain Bears team would like to take a moment to make a public service announcement about discrimination against the Asian American community today. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have faced nearly 4,000 hate crimes since the pandemic began, a 149% rise over the previous year, according to research done by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. In late 2020, the United Nations issued a report that detailed an alarming level of racially motivated violence and other hate incidents against Asian Americans. California Congresswoman Judy Chu, chair of the Asian Pacific American Caucus, called the recent incidents a crisis point for the community. She and other lawmakers are pushing for the U.S. Department of Justice to expand efforts to report, track, and prosecute hate crimes. At the state level, California lawmakers allocated $1.4 million in state funds to expand data collection, advocacy initiatives, and resources for victims. There has been a wave of anti-Asian violence since the start of COVID-19. So we, the Gold Mountain Bears team, would like to use our platform to share some resources to help support the Asian community. If you go to stopasianhate.card.co, you can find links to petitions, donations, ways to spread awareness, and more resources. Now back to the podcast. You briefly touched um, how the laundrymen were bachelors that end up marrying um, white spouses due to the Asian Exclusion Acts that prohibit the majority of Chinese women in the U.S. So um, that may have changed the feminist structure. In addition, you talked about the um, how the business consisted of three male boys that are part of the family. So um, my question is, how were family relations affected when it came to working laundromats? Okay, uh, first let me uh, make a slight digression. This is not a criticism, but you know, um, 
when I was growing up, we made a big distinction between laundries and laundromats. Uh, that distinction has gone away. Uh, laundry and laundromat have become conflated as if they're the same. Now, when I was growing up, a laundromat was cushy job. You had little machines, customers came in, put their clothes in their own little machine, tended them, came out, picked them up, and paid the bill. The, the proprietor could just sit there and wait and take the money. It was really easy street. Whereas the laundry was blood, sweat, and tears. Um, you'd be in a hot, steamy facility all day on your feet, running back and forth, uh, washing clothes, ironing clothes. It's a big difference. But so now I always wince when I, because it's commonplace. Even very highly educated people, when they write, I see them always referring to laundromats, and it it kind of um, you know is is inaccurate. So anyway. Uh, the main question was, <laughs> uh, yeah. So my question was, how were family relations affected when oh, you came yeah. to Sure. Well, of course, if the family was still in China, that would obviously be a, a, a big imp impediment. In fact, because of cultural differences, uh, in many cases I read where it was expected or maybe not expected, but accepted for the Chinese man over in the US to have another wife or a concubine in effect, even though he was had a wife and children in China. So it was seen as expedient that the husband was in the US and he had no access to his you know, wife and, and uh, family. So it definitely put a strain, but on the other hand, um, Chinese did a laundry minute as well as other business were dedicated to some money back to China. How they were able to do this is really hard to know because they weren't, weren't making a whole lot of money. And because of the rate of exchange was good, the small amounts of money they sent back to China were very helpful to their impoverished families. Uh, on a footnote there, some of these Chinese laundrymen, especially if they had a partner who could look after the laundry while they were away, they would go back periodically, maybe every few years to visit the family. And that's not ideal, but they would go back. And it was interesting that uh, when they talked about what they did in America, they would say, um, they ran a clothing store. So the, the word in Chinese for laundry is sai guan. And guan is like a, a business or store. Sai yi is wash clothes. So you say sai guan, washing clothes store. But when they went back to China, it got twisted around and they forgot about the, the sai part, the wash. They say yi guan, which means like clothing store. So all the relatives would be very impressed that they're uh, husband or son was back in the U.S. like running uh, Mills Outpost or where, men's warehouse or something. They got the impression that they were really making it, but they weren't. You know, they were really not doing very well. So there was that problem. Um, the other problem was uh, related to this was the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, which was one of the major reasons why 
the women couldn't come over, especially uh, early, and that was even what was called the Page Act in 1875. In any case, um, somehow they found uh, illegal ways of bringing people over, either smuggling them over, which was very costly and dangerous, or getting false documents. So we talk a lot about paper sons, and uh, actually there were also paper daughters. So what would happen is uh, there are different ways this could happen. Um, an older Chinese might retire and go back to China, and he would sell his papers or uh, to another person who resembled him so he could try to get in using those. Or um, when he went back to China for a visit, every time he'd come back, he'd report that he had a son, a son he had uh, sired a son in China. And then um, some, some years later, um, maybe 10 years later, 12 years later, uh, they find some boy who sort of could match the description, even though a lot of times, you know, Caucasians can't tell the difference about Asians anyway, they all look the same. So a 12-year-old boy could pass as a 16-year-old boy if he was mature looking. So he would come over, memorize the paper, uh, the material, the, the, dim, the uh, bio of the person. And if you could pass the test uh, at the immigration office uh, in Angel Island starting in 1910, you could get in. And uh, same thing with daughters. If a daughter could get a hold of papers, and usually they didn't spend money bringing daughters over because they didn't think they would you know, be as good uh, for the work. But in any case, uh, you, uh, in line with your question, it, it certainly created a problem for families in general. And more broadly, it set the Chinese population back one or two generations in terms of having a family structure. You have like 30 or 40 or more years of communities where there are only Chinese or men, you don't have families. And then uh, when the families do come over, there's a big adjustment. I know like uh, in my uncle's case, he came in the 1930s and it wasn't until 1950 that his wife and two sons came over. And I remember meeting them, you know, when they were 12 or 14. So it was a big adjustment for everyone, but people are pretty adaptable too. Uh, so it, it clearly was a, an adjustment to be made. And the notion of the paper son and the paper daughter created a lot of problems for Chinese, uh, not only just for laundrymen, for, but for people like in restaurant business and so forth, because there was always the fear they would be found out and deported. And that threat was always hanging over them. And uh, in the 1950s, um, the honeymoon with China was over because uh, repeal of the Exclusion Act was in 43, and there was a honeymoon period for about five to eight years where China was America's ally and uh, Chinese immigration was uh, looked on more positively. But then when Mao and the communists came into power in the 50s, there was all the suspicion that uh, a lot of Chinese were either spies or they were uh, communist sympathizers and, you know, they had relatives back in China. So in San Francisco, especially, 
there was a panic and people burned all their records, took all their family documents and destroyed them, which was a major loss. But that that showed, sort of showed the, you know, the impact that this uh, Exclusion Act had on the Chinese. One, one other case that might be worth mentioning that also illustrates some of the dangers of, uh, that we're seeing resurfacing in, in the intensity now. Um, in 1909, a white uh, woman who was, uh, she wasn't a missionary, but she went to the uh, school uh, in uh, New York Chinatown. A lot of young white women were interested in teaching Chinese men how to speak English. So they would go down there and, and uh, help out. Uh, this was a sort of a social response. Well, what happened in 1909 was a young woman, 23 years old, Elsie Siegel, disappeared and was found dead, stuck in a steamer trunk that was located in the apartment shared by two Chinese men. So the suspect, Leon Ling, was, could not be found anywhere. He disappeared, which also incriminated him, obviously. So this was widely publicized and all the newspapers around the country carry the story. And there were sightings of Leon Ling everywhere. One day he'd be in Florida, the next day he'd be in Montana. Someone would say, I saw him in Phoenix, you know. In other words, anytime someone saw a Chinese man of that age, that, that must be Leon Ling, that must be him. Um, long story short, they never found him, but it illustrates the, the hazards of this sort of uh, image, you know, and negative uh, impact that just that one case had. Um, so. Oh, I remember um, learning about that in uh, one of our uh, readings for yeah. our course. So yeah, it was really interesting to hear about like how the, um, how um, there was like racial discrimination saying like, oh, we've seen uh, Liang Lang at Arizona or whatnot, uh -huh. just as, yeah. yeah. Um, I also had a quick question. Were Chinese, did Chinese laundrymen receive merchant status or was it, was their business not considered um, um, under Yeah, I wondered status. about that myself, you know, um, because I was thinking, uh, you know, when I learned that the exclusion law only allowed merchants, diplomats, students, and whatever come. So I just assumed for the longest time that my father was considered a businessman. But I said, how can this be? Because the criterion was when they asked the white witnesses, he said, do you ever see him lift a hand in labor? <laughs> you know, did he ever do any manual labor? Well, yeah, he did a lot of manual labor. <laughs> so how did he qualify to be a merchant? <clears throat> this totally mystified me. Um, I contacted uh, the late uh, great historian, Judy Young, who I uh, became friends with uh, about a year ago, and I asked her about that. And I think she said there was a brief period where they changed the classification. But uh, I don't think that would have been applicable to all of them. So, but what I discovered was, uh, and this is the advantage of uh, having archives because uh, my father never really talked to me about any of this stuff. It was my mother who, who educated me and, and told me about Angel Island and how they were treated. And she was very bitter about it. My father, just his personality, 
I don't think he ever said a word about this to me. So anyway, I discovered, I knew that my father had come first as a bachelor. And he went to Chattanooga because he had relatives there. Then he went to Augusta and he had relatives there. But then he went back to China and arranged marriage with my mom. And then they came back over together. But when he was in Augusta, there's a document I found in the archives where he paid $500 to be a partner in a corporation or something. Maybe it wasn't called a corporation. It was like a company. It was like a, um, we're going to be partners in uh, a merchantile store that maybe like, they'll say, we're a grocery store and we 10 people each have $500 invested in this. So that was either very um, smart of him or he was really well coached or he was just lucky because when he filed that document, that made him a merchant. It wasn't the laundry made him a merchant. It was his $500 that made him a partner. I guess you'd call him a silent partner. He was never in the grocery business. He would, he, you know, when he left Augusta, he just paid his $500, put his name on the contract and left. Now, I can't say that the immigration never came to Georgia to look for him. Um, you know, I, ha I have no history of that, but I, I imagine if he did, he could pull this thing out and say, I was a merchant. <laughs> I don't know. That's how he finessed it. And I'm sure there were others who, who got advice from, you know, either the uh, clan association or whatever. It's hard to imagine back in those days, but, you know, because we have all this instant information on the internet and everything. In those days, especially if you didn't know the language, how did you know what to do, how to contact, you know, people didn't call each other on their cell phones. Long distance calls were prohibitively expensive. How do they know all this stuff? Now, we were isolated in Georgia, but we did subscribe to a Chinese newspaper. It came, I don't know, maybe once a week or something. And my mother would learn stuff from that because she'd always be telling me about all these atrocities and how uh, all these Chinese were mistreated and everything. And I'm thinking to myself as a kid, how does she know this? We didn't have, we didn't have television in those days. She didn't have other Chinese people to tell her this. So I think I should picked up a lot of this stuff in the Chinese newspaper. And I think um, some research needs to be done on how influential those Chinese newspapers were for Chinese who were out living out in the boonies, you know, away from New York City or the West Coast. Yeah, thank you for your answer again, Dr. Zhang. Um, we had another question. So mm -hmm. As we learned in our Chinese American history course, it was common for immigrants to have um, this sojourner mentality, um, which basically means that they viewed their time in the US as temporary and a means to earn money before returning to their homeland. So what would you say was the degree of sojourner mentality among Chinese laundry men? Um, well, it probably shifted over the years, but, uh, and there's been some dispute about whether Sojourner hypothesis is valid, but I tend to believe it certainly, it certainly was true for the early ones. Their main goal was to make money, and they dreamed that they would, you know, make it rich and then they go back to China. 
I know in my own personal experience, a couple of times my father would talk about going back to China. I was probably 10 or 11 at the time. And I was appalled when I heard that and I was shocked. And I remember specifically saying in protest to my father, I said, I'm not going, you, you may go, but goodbye, I'm not going. Uh, that's how Americanized I was, I mean, which is understandable. Uh, so he had a sojourner mentality, but uh, a lot of those uh, were unfulfilled, you know, after the communists took over. Um, you wouldn't want to go back um, because, you know, you'd be uh, probably put in jail for being a capitalist or something. So, um, but I think um, as time went on and more of them became uh, acclimated or acculturated or assimilated, whatever the right word is. Um, and also as they started having American born children like myself, uh, then they would have been torn about whether to go back or to stay because and I'm sure it varied with the situation. Let's say you came over originally, you're gonna be a sojourner, you have a family here, you have roots of some sort here, and maybe your family in China has, has passed on, and then you might not feel as motivated to go back. So I think it depends on what decade we're talking about, but uh, I was reading where, uh, you know, until the revolution in, China, in 1911, uh, when Sun Yat-sen took over, that gave um, the opening for Chinese to cut off their queues, because that was, a, a token of, uh, um, well, uh, allegiance to the Manchu. But once that was gone, they didn't have to wear their cues. And so the argument was they maintained wearing their cues partly because they intended to go back to China. I mean, because they're in the US, uh, the Manchus aren't gonna find that they're not wearing their cues, but they kept them. So that was interpreted as saying, well, deep down inside, they really plan to go back. And I think it would have been logical. Um, they, they were not well treated in the US. Uh, many of them didn't learn the language, especially if they lived in places like Chinatowns, uh, which was self-contained and they felt very secure there. They had all their uh, customs, uh, foods. Um, they had other people they could socialize with. Uh, they had entertainment. Uh, if they were in places like our family was, uh, that wouldn't have been so much the case. Uh, my parents had no social life at all. There were no other uh, Chinese there. Uh, the closest were in Atlanta, and that's about 100 miles away. And we'd go there once in a long, long time, but that's not the same. Um, so my own experience uh, until I moved to San Francisco was I was I I I didn't see myself as a Chinese person, although I knew I had Chinese ancestry, and I I, I knew certain Chinese customs, and uh, we always ate Chinese food, and, and my parents always spoke to me in Chinese, but I didn't I didn't feel like I really knew what it was to be Chinese, and then when I moved to San Francisco, and suddenly overnight I was surrounded by, you know, hundreds if not thousands of Chinese as a total uh, awakening for me. And uh, it was a real, uh, I won't say shock, but it was a real adventure. It was real 
learning experience. And so I never really felt like I you know, was enough, Chinese enough, let's put it that way. Funny thing is though, when I would talk about this in some of my talks I would go and give at various places, other people in the audience would raise their hand and say, well, I grew up in San Francisco, but um, because we worked all the time and we lived out far from Chinatown, um, I didn't feel Chinese enough either because I didn't have time to interact with other Chinese people either. So I found that really interesting. I, I just assumed that they were Chinese enough. And I, I talked to my cousins in Atlanta um, where there were maybe seven or eight Chinese families. And I was sort of expressing a little bit of envy that you know they had all these opportunities to mingle and mix with other Chinese people growing up. And they said, no, we didn't. We were busy working all the time. Even though there were seven families in town, we almost never got together because you know, we were too busy working. So it just goes to show you, you know, your assumptions can often be wrong. Yep. Um, yeah. Thank you for, sorry. Thank you for sharing our story. Um, so you mentioned how Chinese lounges at the E in their phrases, um, along with how the white public perceived their business with um, derogatory phrases. Um, what were some other stereotypes or common images that people had of laundrymen? Um, okay, one of the dangerous uh, assumptions was that these Chinese laundrymen, since they were alone and bachelors, um, they were often seen to befriend, befriend children. Children would come in and, you know, Chinese love children, and so they didn't have any children on their own. They give them candy, uh, and the children would go and visit a lot. And there was a case in Milwaukee. I don't remember the exact year of a Chinese laundryman who was accused of enticing young white girls into the back of the laundry, or even black women were, you know, uh, Paul Su talks about this in his book, The Chinese Laundryman, Study in Isolation, which is a classic book written in the 40s, uh, actually written earlier than that, but not published until about 1950, about all the Chinese uh, laundrymen in Chicago. It's a great book uh, because it gives a lot of uh, interviews and so forth. So anyway, the Chinese laundrymen had that negative image uh, surrounding them that they were child seducers. And so, um, and because of that one case in Milwaukee uh, also kind of highlighted that, that fear. So uh, Chinese laundries would be either if not boycotted, you know, they would be um, uh, surveyed, uh, you know, looked on with suspicion. Um, the, um, also, I guess there was a notion that uh, Chinese weren't capable of doing anything else, but that's partly because they really weren't given the opportunity to engage in other activities. Uh, eventually, <laughs> So some of their children went to college and achieved uh, success in a lot of other fields, which uh, helped sort of change that image a little bit. But it's interesting, uh, in the last oh, 20 years or so, I, I sometimes look at old newspaper archives. And uh, so when the Chinese laundryman retires after 60 years of being in laundry, 
the local newspapers do a big positive splash. You trace the story and talk about him being uh, like a such a dedicated, uh, um, hardworking, good citizen. And so there's all this nostalgia and everything seemed positively, even though earlier, you know, it was probably rather nasty, but now that um, they've been there 40 or 50 years and they've become a fixture in their community, even though they were never really accepted as, you know, fully part of the community. Um, there's, there's just interesting how there are all these accolades and, and praise of uh, the laundryman. He's always thought of as being a little, and I use the word queer, not in the way it's used uh, in terms of sexuality, but odd, um, you know, there was always little fuddy-duddy images of the Chinese laundryman. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear like how um, a lot of the things about like the struggle, uh, the struggle for many Chinese Americans and for um, specifically with the laundrymen is like very similar to maybe how um, um, maybe like chi Chinese people in the U.S. feel today because like uh, sharing your story about like how you didn't feel Chinese enough, even coming from, um, you know, um, someplace like Georgia, like um, I feel that way too, even though I came from California, but not from like, um, a place that had a lot of uh, people in the, uh, Chinese people in the community. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's really it's really good to hear that you know like um, some of us are all still feeling this way and we're not alone. And um, do you have any um, final thoughts before we wrap up this interview? Um, well, I'd like to say um, in uh, praise of Chinese laundries, um, they were a very important part of history for the Chinese in particular, uh, not to say it didn't also benefit the country, uh, but if the Chinese were to come over for the first time now, there wouldn't be a business like laundries for them to get into. There would be no economic resource. So uh, bad as the conditions were, when the Chinese came, the laundry was not ideal, but it was, an opening, it gave them a way to um, succeed financially, even though you know, it was really through hard work, long, hard sweat equity. Um, they didn't complain a whole lot about it. They just went about their business and did it, which is a, a tribute to them. Um, many of them uh, were able to save enough to support their families back in China and to support their children through college. And so the next generation benefited from that. And unfortunately now, as we got several generations beyond that, I don't think Chinese laundry is getting or has the respect or um, recognition that it deserves. So that's why I'm glad to see that you guys are interested in this topic. And I hope what I've shared with you has been of some value to you. Well, that about wraps up our time knowing the insightful and historical instances of the deep struggle against discrimination in Chinese laundries during the pre-21st century. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed meeting you and I liked your questions. And I hope it's been useful for you. Yeah, this has been extremely valuable for us. Thank you for your time. I definitely learned a lot. The majority of Chinese American history has been lost and undocumented until recently. 
with the establishment of the Ethnic and Asian American Studies departments at UC Berkeley. These educational departments have given us the opportunity to learn about the complex history of minorities and immigrant populations in the US. So having Dr. Zhang on our podcast today has been an incredible opportunity brought to life by the amazing courses offered by Berkeley's history departments. Um, thank you, Dr. Zhang, for your insight. Good, wonderful. Yeah, um, thank you so much for our time, Dr. Zhang. It means a lot to see the passion of researching about the history of Chinese American history along with Chinese laundries. Um, Dr. John's book, um, Chinese American History, um, Chinese Laundryman is listed on the screen if you want to check out his work for what he has referenced in the interview. We hope that the listeners to this interview will learn something new through the glimpse of Chinese laundromats in the US from Dr. John Jung or perhaps another piece of Chinese American history to shed the light on how Chinese laundry people, along with many others, were treated in this country. We would like to thank John again, along with the listeners to this podcast. This is Zilin. This is Phoebe. This is Raymond. And this is Jessica. And we are the Golden Mountain Bears signing off. <laughs>